Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome this Thursday. You know, this is a beautiful, beautiful day, and we have Mr. John Johnson on the phone with us this morning. Mr. Johnson is retired president and CEO of CHS, and under his tenure, the revenue grew from $8 billion to $40.6 billion. Billion, that is, not million, billion dollars. Good morning, Mr. Johnson. Good morning, Vernon. How are you this morning? I'm great. How are you doing? Well, very, very good. Very good. I'm here in uh, peaceful Minnesota. Looking out at the lake with a little clouds and rain this morning, so it's good. Okay. We've got a beautiful day here in D.C. You know, I want to start off, well, first, just thanking you for taking out time to being on the show. But how did you how did you grow the business? Did you increase the member owners or increase the amount of business that each one of them did, or both? Well, it was a long strategic uh, process over about a 15-, 16-year window, my tenure as the CEO. And we did it with a combination of uh, mergers, taking regional co-ops and merging them together to become a larger uh, co-op. We took smaller co-ops, and they integrated uh, with us over a number of years that made it even larger. We did a number of acquisitions with different companies uh, across the U.S. and globally. And then we expanded geographically uh, in areas that traditionally our co-op was not involved in, and grew our local co-op member base uh, in new geographic areas. And probably the last thing was we, uh, well, probably my last seven, eight years as CEO, we developed uh, an international strategy where we put markets together for purchasing and exporting around the world. So a combination of all those things uh, took the company from the, some $8 billion to over over $40 billion over that, that time frame. So... It was a combination of uh, acquisitions and mergers and uh, territory expansion that uh, increased our membership and increased our customer base over time. Okay, so can you tell our listeners what CHS, it's a co-op, and who are the members and how do you become a member, and it's member-owned, which makes it the yeah, co-op? That, yeah, that, that's a great question. Uh, it is a co-op. I started back in the... Um, early uh, 40s, probably even some of this uh, uh, origination even back before that, after the Depression. And a lot of farmers here in the Midwest um, felt that they were not being treated fairly. Uh, price problems with their supply and price problems with selling their grains into international companies and felt that they wanted to do something about it, and they formed the co-op called, at that time, GTA, Grain Terminal Association. And then also on the fuel side, they formed a company called the Central Exchange, which was for fuel and fertilizer. And those are two companies that, you know, back in 1998, we merged them together as one. 
But their originations were very similar. Back it was in the Midwest, uh, seeing issues with fairness in pricing for their farm supplies, fairness in pricing of selling grain into the market. So they formed a co-op under very distressed conditions back in that time economically for farmers. And you got to give credit to these farmers and the fortitude they had to step up and form a co-op with limited financing and uh, put together a company that, uh, you know, some 70, 80 years later uh, became a Fortune 100 company. And and so, again, back in those days, it was really formed for the purpose of getting more fairness in the pricing of their supplies and better fairness around pricing their grain products out. So that was the origination of the company back in the early 40s. The membership is actually made up of um, farmers and and also what we call local co-ops. These are grain elevators and diesel fuel and fertilizer retail operations throughout the entire United States that either buy and or sell products into the company we call CHS. And their membership is really by doing business. There's nobody that ever wrote out a check uh, to CHS or back in the early days, GTA or Central Exchange. They, they really became members by doing business. And the profits they earned over the years, a portion that was always retained in the form of equity. And that equity then was the ownership by the members, which was farmers in local cooperatives over that period of time. Wow. Yeah, it's a pretty remarkable story, you know, when, you know, I think in the latter years, you know, we were sending out cash dividends of about a half a billion dollars a year, and while at the same time, their equity in the company kept growing and growing, and then once the farmer exited the farming business, then their equity would be paid out by CHS, and if you're a local co-op where they have continuing business um, pretty much forever, then there was a retirement plan based on certain percentage of their equity each and every year. So, you know, it's a remarkable story when I think about investment equity. Uh, these farmers and local co-ops didn't put $1 of equity into the company or money, cash. They earned their equity out by doing business. They got paid dividends over the years, and eventually they built up equity bases that get retired either over time or when they retire. So it's kind of a, a really unique story when you think about uh, a farmer or a local cooperative owning a Fortune 100 company and getting those kind of cash dividends, the only thing they have to do is do business with the company. And the thing about doing business, everyone says, well, you must be overpricing their supplies <laughs> or underpricing their grain. But the reality is that we had to compete with every other supplier that was out there. So ExxonMobil or Cargill or ADM, all these people were competitors, and we had to be in the market each and every day to attract their business. So I always put it this way. Uh, the farmer can market his grain, buy supplies at everything at, at a at market value, and at the end of the day, if we make any money, they get it back. Isn't that a great program? Yeah. Matter of fact, it sounds too great. Like, uh, it can't be true. I mean, Particularly, I, I know the third principle of co-op is economic member participation, and normally you have to put some money in in order to become a member. Yeah. And then, like you said, if there's a profit or surpluses, then the membership through the board of directors and the members can decide how much of that surplus stays in the business, how much goes back to the membership, 
or do you use it for some other reason like community, uh, some issue in the community, some philanthropic uh, piece? So, but, so I want to break this down a little bit because you've said a whole lot. And for urban people that may be listening, you've got a farm. And then most mm-hmm. farmers, particularly during the Great Depression, they were losing their land and they didn't have anywhere to sell their goods. And most farmers, particularly small farmers, could not get their products to market where they could get a fair price. Uh, mm-hmm. So they were taken advantage mm-hmm. of in That's selling correct. their products. And then if they didn't buy a lot of grain or fertilizer or gas or whatever they needed in terms of their supplies, they had to pay a higher price. So that's the reason that I've gotten out of, we've been doing this show now, Mr. Johnson, anybody that's run a Fortune 100 company, you're Mr. in my mind. Okay, so we've been doing this for three and a half years. I've learned a little bit about your business. So it's like the farmers come together so that they can have expertise on on the supply side. Because the farmer cannot have all of the expertise to know who all the who the vendors are and what's the best contracts to do and so forth, so they get some co-op on the buying side of it, a purchasing co-op, and then they'll get another join another co-op on the selling side, so they can get their product to market. That's correct. Okay. And we were both. You were both. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We were on the. Uh buying side for the grain and we were on the selling side for farm supplies primarily uh, all the fuels and fertilizer and chemicals and seeds things like like that and you'd ask yourself well back in the 1940s the farmers were struggling financially and so how did the companies get started well they got started by the affiliation with uh, the uh, farmer groups called farmers union and they were the original seed money uh, for the two co-ops. Now, since that time, we do business with more than just Farmers Union members. They're Farm Bureau and Grangers and all of them we do business with. But the original start back in the 40s, the seed money actually came from the Farmers Union organizations. I can't remember if it was totally out of North Dakota and Minnesota or what, but it was in the Midwestern Farmers Union that put the seed money up way back when to start uh, what was then called the Central Exchange and the Grain Terminal Association. Because in the original names of these companies back then, they had Farmers Union as the lead name, Farmers Union Central Exchange, Farmers Union Grain Trade Association. So that's where the origination came back then, because no company gets started with no money, and farmers individually didn't have it, but through their a farm association called Farmers Union. That's how the seed money got started way back when. Now that that money's all been paid back and dividends put on it and things like that. So that's kind of a, a past history, but it's part of the history of the company and how it got going. Okay. So the first principle of co-ops is volunteer and open membership. So absolutely, all, and we were that. And so all you had to do was say, "I want to join" and sign up. You didn't have yep. to put any money up. That's right. Wow. And That's you, right. You, you, now, we have a lot of co-ops that were, um, I'll call them processing companies, where they would take grain and they'd make you know, flour or they'd make corn oil, things like that. And those were called closed co-ops. And that's where the farmer put risk capital into the company that was associated with a certain uh, volume of grain, whatever grain they were going to process, and then from that, they would take the, the money and they'd get back, you know, a return each year if they made money. 
And if they decided to expand the company and more capital was needed, they would fund more capital to it. So that was called a closed co-op. Now, we were not. We were an open co-op. And an open co-op basically says anyone can join. All you really have to do is do business with us. This is a phenomenal story. Why most Americans don't know about this? Well, (laughs) it's kind of funny because here's CHS headquartered in St. Paul, Minnesota. And it's a Fortune 100 company with 40-plus billion in sales, 10,000 employees around the world. And and yet, you know, we're not, you know, recognized kind of in the same sentences as you would have major corporations that are in the same space as we. Now, people that we either compete with or partner with, they all know us very well as being a very large and a quite successful financially uh, company. So... It's not like we're unknown, but we, we never went around, Vernon, and, and really did a loud tooting of our horn. Well, we just to, stuck to, to our knitting, did our business, kept growing the company, uh, paying our farmers and local cooperatives dividend, retiring our equity, keep reinvesting in the company over a long period of time. We got we to gotta take our first break. my strategy. <laughs> this is kind of interesting. Wait, wait, John, John, we got to take our first break. We'll be right back. You're excited, and I'm excited. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that down. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, WOM, 95.9 FM. Information is power, only if you use it. And the reason the National Cooperative Bank is sponsoring this program is to give you information about cooperatives. Hopefully, you'll go out and use it, starting your own co-op or buying from co-ops, housing co-ops, credit unions, uh, whatever that co-op may be, and that's where you get the power, people coming together, working together. And we may have Mr. John Johnson uh, on the line with us, who's retired CEO of CHS, a Fortune 100 company with over 10,000 employees and $40 billion in sales. Mr. Johnson, we were talking about promotions when we had to take our first break. And you were well into it. I apologize for cutting you off in mid-sentence. But the reason I ask you the question, because I had the pleasure of being at the United Nations in 2011 and the White House in 2012 when the United Nations declared that 2012 was a year of the cooperative. And Mr. Chuck Snyder, president of National Co-op Bank, and about four or five people said that co-ops are the world's best-kept secret. And one of the reasons that we started this program, this radio program, was to get the word out about co-ops. That's why I'm asking the question of almost everybody that comes on is, why don't we promote co-ops? It's such a great business model for everyday people, whether they're farmers or people that live in the inner city. So you were talking about you didn't toot your own horn. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, uh, we knew that uh, we were a, a good competitor in our, our industry space. Uh, we respected our ownership model, which meant farmers and local cooperatives uh, were owners, but also customers, which creates, I think, a unique relationship in a lot of ways. Because we need to balance, you know, their ownership along with the company and along with them being our customers. So it's a unique balancing act that I think creates a win-win 
for everybody. Now, you probably ask, how did we take a company with $8 billion and take it to $40 billion and grow it like we did? Well, it's no different than any other corporation. We have to allocate resources in the best judgment that management and the directors can fortitude, and that is how much capital do you retain to continue to grow the company? How much money do you borrow against that capital in order to keep the balance sheet strong? And then how much is left over that you can pay back in the form of dividends or the revolvement of the equity that the farmers and the co-ops have invested and have earned in, in the company? So that's the balancing act that I and my senior staff and the board of directors would go through each year. So how we did the growth strategy, I always called it the Pac-Man theory. And what do I mean by the Pac-Man? Well, a lot of companies in the corporate world, they – you know, they do some big, big deal, and maybe it's a 10 or a 20 or a $100 billion thing that expands their company dramatically. But the problem is, if that goes wrong, mm-hmm. the company can go broke. Yep. And that's one thing we weren't going to do. So I used the Pac-Man theory. We just nibbled and chewed, nibbled and chewed, took on acquisitions, took on mergers over a long period of time with the goal in mind that we were going to grow at a rate that our company's balance sheet and our owners expected. And through that process, we gained strength in the marketplace and grew the company the way we did. And and so I'm kind of proud of that fact that we were able to take it through this, I call it Pac-Man approach, nibbling and chewing away with um, small acquisitions, some big mergers, some small mergers, and over a period of time, you grow a company like we did. It's a little bit like I tell my kids, saving money. You can't save a whole bunch at a time because you don't have a whole bunch. But over time, you keep putting money away, you can accumulate some wealth security for your family. No different than business. You can secure long-term growth as long as you grow within the limitations of your balance sheet and your borrowing capacity that, that you can achieve. So that's kind of how we did it. And I can't tell you that everything we did was successful. Mm-hmm. Some things didn't work out the way we intended it to, but once I found out that it wasn't going to work and wasn't going to work, we had the ability to get out. And I think that's the toughest decision some co-ops have is they can't get out. Uh, there's an expectation by their owners or something that even if the business is bad, there's an obligation they need to stay in it. Well, we didn't do that. I mean, we we were patient with them, uh, patient with certain businesses, but over a period of time, if it's not the right fit and economically it's not working, you got to bite the bullet and, and make the decisions to to exit. And we did some, but they weren't major. But it's a matter of kind of thinning the forest out a little bit once in a while to make sure you're focusing your resources, your attention, your management capabilities in the areas that you can grow and be successful at. Wow. Phenomenal. So the second principle is democratic member control. So you had a lot of different members. Yes, we do. A very diversified group. Uh, I mean, you start off with farmers. You've got fruit and vegetable growers from the West Coast, the wheat farmers in the Midwest, the corn and bean farmers in the Far East. And so they got a diverse set of needs 
And then you got local cooperatives that, you know, they're in the fuel business. Some of them are in the retail C-store business. And we got great big grain elevators that have train loading capabilities, fertilizer blending capabilities. So you've got a very diverse group of membership. So having a governance structure that gets representation on that, that buyer's group is very important. So we have 17, we have 17 directors on our company. All 17 of them were farmers, and they all came in representing geographic areas, and their numbers of votes in order to accumulate the number of directors were all predicated off of the equity base and the sales that represented those districts, and that then had a mathematical formula that determined whether you get one director from a district or two directors or three directors. Uh, things like that, that that control the governance. And then they get elected. I think our board members were, had three-year terms. And they get and they get nominated, not by me. <laughs> uh, they get nominated by the farmers and local cooperatives in their particular region. So it's a very, very democratic process when you think about it. The directors that provided the governance for our company were selected and voted upon in the members in their geographic areas. So, you know, from a representation standpoint, I'd say I don't think you can get any more democratic than we were. Mm. In your member economic participation, how did you decide how much money somebody got? Was it based on how much business they did? Yep, yep, exactly. The formula was really driven by either how much product they bought from us or how much in this particular case, it was grain that they sell to us. There was a formula that was used to determine how much total dividend they would get back, and then the, the board and I would sit down and determine how much do we retain as capital and through a formula of how much was paid out in the form of a dividend per bushel, per gallon, per pound, per ton, those kinds of formulas, and then how much we'd pay back in the form of equity, which is retiring the old equities that they've earned over over time. So those are all mathematical formulas that, that quite honestly, it's a balancing act to make sure you're keeping the company strong as well as rewarding your shareholders with dividends and equity revolvement. So how did you make sure you had, number four, autonomy and independence, that, that the members were the ones that were really controlling the business and not government or not uh, somebody you borrowed money from? Uh, how did you make sure that they, they are the ones that, that had total control? Well, um, let me put it this way. I don't think anybody has what I call total control unless you absolutely own and operated and financed your own business. You can probably have all the control you want. But in a company like ours, we borrow a substantial amount of money from the co-op bank systems. CoBank was usually our lead banker, but because of the size of our company, they would syndicate it with a number of not only other co-op banks, but other uh, banking institutions to create the amount of funding we would need. So they've always got a say as a stakeholder in, you know, what what you can and cannot do. Now, and I wouldn't say they would come into our office and say, you can do this and you can do that. They didn't do that. As long as you, uh, you know, are paying your interest and paying your principals off, they pretty much let you do your own thing. But have said that, they're a stakeholder. The other thing is you have the farmers and the members. They're stakeholders, and they're stakeholders to a higher degree because they're the ones that own the equity in the company. 
And they're the ones that have the ability to do business or not do business, whether it's based on our competitiveness. So they're, they're a definite stakeholder of the utmost importance. Mm-hmm. Now, how that control gets balanced is we always drove our company based on balance sheet strength. In other words, the company has to be financially and traditionally strong in order for it to compete and survive long term. And that's why we made sure that we always stayed in our terms, it was an investment-grade company, which means you're a financially worthy uh, company within the banking and lending institutions. And then the governance for the control from farmers and locals, the, they didn't come in and tell us you know, how to run the business. That, that's not how it works. The board is elected by the membership. The board hires the CEO, and the CEO hires the staff. And so the process of, of, of uh, what I'll call discipline is they don't like the direction of the company. The farmers and the members, the first thing they would do is, well, I, will, I need new board members. That's right. And so, we're going, we're going, know, we're going to stop there. get reelected and a new person comes in. John, you know, uh, I'm yeah. sorry. we got to stop now for our second one. We'll come back and talk about the governance because you've hit on what I'm talking about with that control. We'll be right back. from CHS. We were talking about the fourth principle, autonomy and independence. And I guess from my understanding of it, you were, you were talking about it when you said that if, if the members don't like the direction of the companies, then they re-elect or they go back and change the board of directors. And that's where the autonomy and independence comes from, in my view, is that they are the ones that elect the board of directors, and the board of directors sets policies and procedures and higher management, like you said, and uh, the management is the one that implement those policies and procedures. That, that, is, that is correct. I mean, you have to have a, a degree of, of what I'll call organization with any type of uh, corporate structure, including the co-op, and even though the uh, control is really ultimately with the member, the process is they elect the directors. Directors hire the CEO, and the CEO hires staff. And that's the way it has to be. If mm-hmm. there's things that are going wrong in the company, they don't like the direction, the farmers and the members really exercise their strength by electing board members. And if they don't like a board member, they every three years they got an opportunity to submit a different candidate, and run as an election uh, amongst the members. So sometimes, you know, there might be some issue out there that people get upset about, but it doesn't upset all of them. So that's the democratic process. they got to elect a director onto our board. And then the other thing that's important, though, even though, you know, you get new directors, you, the directors need to work as a unit. I found that in my experience over the years with 17 farmers coming from all different disciplines of agricultural production, you know, they come together with the idea that they got to do what's in best interest of their member, but also keep in mind their fiduciary responsibility of providing the right kind of uh, structure and discipline with the company. 
And sometimes that's a, a difficult transition for a farmer or a member cooperative to make when they come on to a, the board of directors is understand that their first fiduciary duty is to make sure that the company is doing financially the right things. And that is then balanced to make sure those right things are in the best interest of your members. So how do you get that training, which is the fifth principle, training, education, training, and information to the members, particularly maybe before they become a board member, so they'll understand their fiduciary responsibility. And that basically is the board has the ultimate responsibility for running the company. If something goes wrong, then it's back to the board. That, 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 that is exactly uh, right. And like I said, the members have the opportunity to select their board member once every uh, three years across the, the, I think we had six districts that they get elected from, so they can exercise their, their voice uh, via the board. But I'll tell you the other thing that I found out early on in my CEO tenure, and that is three words, communication, communication, communication. <laughs> and the reason I say that is that, you know, companies need to do certain things to be fiduciary responsible. I say that uh, most of those decisions are always done with the best interest of our members. But having said that, you don't always make everybody happy. You know that. Mm-hmm. And so the way we would, would do that is that, we had lots and lots of communications with memberships. I personally would go out at least once a year in every one of the geographic areas that we had business with and do informational meetings, update them on the strategic direction of the company, inform them on financially how the company's doing, you know, what are issues and what are opportunities. I bring staff along with me so they got face to face with the people that were in charge of certain business areas. The board members were always with us at those meetings. So they'd always have a part on the program talking about their governance. And we would do that every year along with numbers of other informational meetings we'd put on that might be more business specific around a product line or a program we're implementing. So the communication, then we do, we have a big annual meeting and people in the corporate world they just can't understand a co-op annual meeting. We would have approximately 3,000 people come to our annual meeting. We used the auditorium in Minneapolis for it. And it was a two-day event. The CEO gave a presentation. The CFO gave a presentation. The board chairman gave a presentation, which is not unlike a lot of companies. The difference is we had an open mic program for over an hour at each of those meetings where members could come up and ask any one of my staff, the chairman of the board, or me as a CEO, any question that they may want in a public forum. Now, most people would never subject themselves to those type of things, but they were very productive Mm because you would find things out that maybe we don't always hear from day to day, and they come up and and a lot of the comments were complimentary, uh, but some of them were suggestions. Uh, some of them were just issues they want the company to look into. But in that hour, hour and a half of open dialogue with 3,000 people in the audience was a very productive way of having members be able to, to talk to the board and the senior management team all in one spot. So they also felt heard. Well, Absolutely. 
always had the famous saying that I told my staff, and sometimes I would tell members, and sometimes it was popular, sometimes it wasn't. But I said, everyone has the right to be heard, but we don't have the right to be right. Which means we have to make sure we understand all the dialogue and the uh, considerations that's going on. But at the end of the day, someone's got to make a decision. If you got five ideas out there, but the idea is that the only one's going to have to prevail, someone's got to call the shot. And that has, you know, ultimately ends up in the CEO's desk or a combination of CEO and the board. Well, I'm going to use that quote. You have the right to be heard, but not the right to be right. Okay. Yep. Like yeah. So, we could use that in a lot of places right now, couldn't we? Yeah, well, <laughs> I would love to be able to bring this co-op concept, particularly this education training and information piece, to Congress. Okay. And this communication, yeah. communication, communication. Then they're, you know, they're doing a health bill under closed doors right now. I, yeah, yeah okay. crazy. All right. Yeah. We won't go there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'd say, Vernon, it was, it was, it's been a wonderful, wonderful uh, career experience uh, for me. Uh, I started off uh, growing up on a farm and ranch in the Western Dakotas and got my college degree, and I started my job in selling livestock feed, uh, feed to farmers. So dairy and cattle and swine, and that's how I got my start in agriculture. So I got to know farmers and local cooperatives by calling on them every week, every day. And so I learned the culture, and I learned kind of the, the language of farmers through multiple areas, um, which really helped me when I became CEO. I knew the staff because I, I grew up with all of them. I knew a lot of these members through the years. They either sold them feed or managed people that was selling them feed or buying their grain. So I spent my just about my entire career in this same company. And so I kind of grew up at the grassroots, which I think was very helpful when I moved into the leadership role. So also being a farm boy, I yep. would imagine help growing up on the farm. And getting a degree in business administration yep. must have helped a lot too. And because you, you mentioned balance sheet at least five times and most people don't talk about the balance sheet. They talk about the income and expense statement. How much profit do we make? But the balance sheet is absolutely critical in running a business. Again, most people don't talk about it, but you've already mentioned it five times. Yeah, it, it's extremely important. I mean, I, when I look at any company, I like to manage it for what I call the long term. Uh, you, you can make short-term gains at, uh, at really the, the failure uh, from a long-term perspective. And the way you create strength in a company is just to make sure that you've got a lot of capacity or what I'll call strength in your balance sheet that you can sustain not only your growth, but think about this. In the agricultural business, boy, we have a lot of cycles. <laughs> These businesses can go up and they can go down real quickly. And if you're in a cycle that is very hard to make any money, you better have some balance sheet strength to weather it through until times get better. And farmers understand that. And I remember early on working on my family's farm and ranch, we had cattle. And we had all this hay and hay ground. And I always kept telling my uncles, I said, you know, my dad, you know, we probably could handle a few hundred more cattle out here. It looks all the hay. And I remember my uncle telling me, he said, John, you got to remember, we get a drought here quite often. 
There will be years we'll need every bit of that hay to feed the herd we have. We don't need any more. And it's a little bit like business. you got to keep your haystack full enough that you can get through those bad times. Well, oh, it sounds like a farm boy over there. But it takes me back to seven fat cows and seven lean cows in the Bible. It, you, you've got to have the savings uh, for those hard yeah. times. Uh, exactly, exactly. And as a, as a co-op, you know, we, we, we went through our, our periods of time when agriculture was really a tough, tough business to be in. And you got to remember, our members are suffering when the company suffers. So, you know, we just need to make sure that uh, the company can be there to supply them with their farm input needs and market their grain over a long period of time. And you do that by keeping a sustainable company that has a strong balance sheet. You mentioned it for the sixth time, so let me make sure everybody knows what a balance sheet is. It's on your balance sheet you have your assets and your liabilities, and your assets and your is equity. what you. Well, I see. I call the uh, equity is a part of liability, and let me show you how I describe it. So, if your yep. assets are what you own, and liabilities are what you owe, and That's what John right. talked about is if you normally if you take your who you owe money to liabilities and you subtract it from your asset, that gives you your net worth. And I say that's what the mm-hmm. company owes the um, members, members, the stakeholders. Yep. And that net worth has got to be high. That's your savings. That's your uh, or your, your savings and your asset side. The higher that is, yep. like your bales of hay out there on the, on, in the farm, the bigger amount of savings you got, that means you can weather the storm when it comes. The storm is going to come. It, it, I just don't it's know when. Come. So yeah, there, there, it's always going to be out there. We always call that our debt to equity ratio, and we had a discipline within our company that we keep that at a certain ratio, so we knew, you know, we could sustain anything that was out there. And also, I kind of have this theory that you know, cash is kind of king too. So when things get tough, is usually when opportunities can arise. Yep. I mean, you can make great acquisitions when businesses are depressed and things are going not as good for your competitors. And guess what? You can step in and get some great values on the acquisition side, but it takes a balance sheet in order to do that. Do you recall what your debt-to-equity ratio was? Yeah, we. I don't know what it is right now. I haven't followed it. But we, we always had a discipline that our debt-to-equity, uh, we couldn't have any more than about 45% debt to our equity. That's okay. very conservative, by the way, in the corporate America. Most most corporations would be one-to-one or more, and we were uh, half-to-one. So for every dollar of assets, you'd only have 50 cents? No, no, no. Every dollar of debt, we would have uh, two to two-and-a-half dollars of equity. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's a very conservative approach. I used to have bankers tell me, John, you're too conservative. You could take on more debt. You can take on more debt. I said, well, yeah, I probably could. But I remember some tough lean years in this kind of business, and uh, we'll be the survivor. (laughs) We're going to take our third break, and then we'll come back and talk about cooperation among cooperatives and concern for community as the six and seven principle. Okay. John, this is an absolute pleasure. I'm so glad you've come on. Uh, and if anybody out there have any questions or comments, you can call in at 1-800-450-7876. We'll be right back.
Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, W.O.L. at 95.9 FM. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oakes on Everything Cooperative, and we have Mr. John Johnson on the phone with us. And we're talking about CHS and farming and farm co-ops. The National Co-op Bank is sponsoring this program. NCB's mission is to support and be an advocate for America's cooperatives and their members, especially in low-income communities, by providing innovative financial and related services. Did you ever have the need to utilize NCB services, John? Oh, yes. They did a lot of work with us on what I'll call uh, board governance training. Uh, they, they, they did a lot, of, a lot of that stuff with us, and so we had a lot of interactions along with the National Farmers Cooperative Association there in D.C. who you know, kind of looked out for different issues that were going on uh, from a legislative standpoint that may affect our business. So we had a lot of involvement with the uh, co-op associations uh, around uh, D.C. and other, other areas, yes. So that gets to this cooperation among co-ops. It sounds like CHS is nothing but a lot of different co-ops working together. We did. We have a combination. Well, first of all, our members are made up of a lot of local co-ops, so so you've got a direct affiliation there. And then we had uh, relationships with uh, other uh, regional uh, cooperatives and as well as associations. And, and, you know, the thing that, that was a priority, we had a foundation that they formed many, many years ago, and we funded it with a certain percent of our uh, profits each and every year. And a lot of that was dedicated to uh, uh, land-grant colleges and universities across the U.S. for the purpose of educating young people in what I'll call agricultural and or business education. Uh, Our feeling was very strong that the future for cooperatives, the future for agriculture, and the future for, for the business was really through our youth. And if you can do the right things, provide opportunities for for young people to get educated in these land-grant colleges, it was extremely important to us. So we we provide a lot of funds in there to give back uh, to the youth for educational purposes. And you think about that, though, Vernon, that's a strategic move. Mm -hmm. You're providing the leadership for agriculture and cooperatives and business long-term by providing the financial resources for young people to get educated. Now, could you get them to, to teach about co-ops? Because in my education, I've got two master's degrees. I uh, undergrad and ma- I never heard the word cooperative in the form of a cooperative business. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I know the curriculum on every one of these universities we funded, but I can tell you for a lot of them here in the Midwest that I was quite, quite familiar with, they did have um, a class that they provided on on co-ops, in other words, business structures, and why is a co-op a co-op, and what is the benefits of a member being in a co-op, and so a lot of that is, is there. But beyond that, then, you know, there's a lot of specific things we would do through these regions that would provide co-op education for youth, and that's a tough battle to have Um, because there are so many opportunities for young people in agriculture in non-co-op venues but if you think about rural america uh, and i grew up here in the midwest south dakota north dakota minnesota iowa up in this area the largest business in most of these towns is what agriculture okay yeah you know it's either a big grain elevator or a fertilizer and fuel station stuff like that and they're the largest business in these communities. 
which then relates to the largest opportunity for young people uh, to gain employment and, and careers. I'd say that one of the challenges that I've watched, though, as these young people come through, and even though you teach them about co-ops and agriculture, you know, to, to get a young family to move to, I don't know, you name the town, Williston, North Dakota, or uh, some small town in, in rural America, uh, the young couples <clears throat> nowadays seem to want to be around more metropolitan areas provide, you know, different things for their kids and themselves. Well, the, the problem we had is most of our opportunities in our local areas was out in the rural areas. Now, once you find couples that really enjoy that type of lifestyle, they're wonderful, but there's getting to be more people, you know, it's dual incomes and, and more opportunities for young kids to do stuff in some of the smaller communities. It's a challenge to get that. So that was kind of an issue we faced, but that's why we recruited a lot of our staff that, that really came out of these more rural educational uh, places, even like tech colleges. So we have several of them up here in the Midwest, and they got to be really good spots for us to recruit people from because they usually grew up on farms and ranches, and they wanted to stay in, in rural environments. Well, I grew up in Bluefield, West Virginia, which is rural. And from I graduated in 1965 from high school, and I would suggest to you that everybody, at least everybody black in that community, was getting out of town. How you get out? But we were coal, and so coal has been going down for a long time. Some farming, but not a whole lot. But I understand the rule, at least from my experience. People try to get to, as I did, uh, urban areas because it seemed to have been more opportunity for work. Yeah, and yeah. countries. And so yeah. yeah, I agree. How do you? How yeah. do you get... So it's it's just a challenge on, on making sure we get the best and the brightest to uh, stay in these rural areas to create careers in in our case agriculture. But it, it it is a challenge. So your concern for community is you put money together in the foundation, and I've been reading you put about two point five million dollars in scholarships to high school and college students. That's but, correct. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing it says here on your bio that you. Uh, want to alleviate hunger. Yeah, you know, as you get a little older, you start setting goals beyond your career. And um, I was heavily involved in United Way and other organizations here in the Twin Cities. And, you know, sometimes you, you get kind of uh, uneducated around the challenges that you have in any community. And what hit me is, as I worked with United Way here in the Twin Cities, is the amount of children that were going hungry during any particular day of the week. And you think about that, as wealthy as a country we are, and as affluent as we are, we still have kids that go hungry. Mm -hmm. So that became kind of a passion for me, both in my family, as we have a foundation and gifting a lot of it's directed towards kids and creating a better atmosphere for them. And the first thing they have to do is get fed. And so we do a lot of things with food bank and things with those sort of natures because that just seems like an absolute crime to me that a, a child should go during the day hungry. The backpack that you all have it for the summer up there, I know up in, in West Virginia is trying to get kids to take food home because the other kids that are not, not in school don't eat. 
Or in the summer, they don't have food. So it's like, how do you get these kids to have food throughout the year? Yeah, it's interesting. I'm trying to get now my kids and my grandkids uh, interested in, in some of that same sort of mindset. So last year at Christmas, I got all my grandkids and my kids together, and uh, we did uh, a sandwich-making day uh, for the homeless. <laughs> so we set up all of our dining room tables with massive amounts of loaves of bread and cheese and salami, and we made sandwiches all the I don't know how many we made. I mean, it was just bags and bags of them. And uh, and we got them out through an organization that got it to the kids and the homeless people here in the cities. And my kids and grandkids, they really got kind of a kick out of it. We, we made, made it a fun day, but they truly understood what it was for. Absolutely. John, how did you sum up your career? Do you, have you liked what you've done? Would you want to do anything different? Uh, yeah, people ask me that a lot. I tell you, Vern, I, I was absolutely uh, blessed uh, with a wife that I dated all through high school and college and got married. So we celebrated our 47th wedding anniversary, got three wonderful children, six grandkids. I've had uh, a, a career that most people just dream about. And I can't tell you that there was any job I had and the stepping blocks that I had through my career that I did not like. I enjoyed every one of them. Now, I haven't said that. There are days you get up and say, oh, my gosh, i got to face this today. But that's part of growing up. That's part of the journey in any career. But to enjoy your work is one of the most important things that you can do. And I tell that to my kids when they got their education and went on to working, that the first thing in order is not how much money you'll make, but will you enjoy doing what you're doing. Amen. And if you enjoy it and you're good at it, the financial rewards will be there. Yeah, but you never get up feeling like drudgery and pain either. It's like you get up excited about going to work. <laughs> yeah, well, that that to me is the journey. You, you get up in the morning, you know you've got a pretty difficult situation coming upon you, a, a tough decision you got to make. You maybe agonize it over the night, and you wake up at 2 in the morning, you think about it. But then when you accomplish solving a problem and the issue gets resolved, there's no better satisfaction. So even though they sometimes make you worry a lot and more so than necessary, the end result is if you, if you handle them straight on and you do it with a theory that you do what is right, with right. Uh, it's the most enjoyable thing you can ever do. In the last minute, John, what about co-ops have caused you to enjoy your work more than if you had not been in a co-op world? Well, I think the, the main thing is there's nothing like having your uh, owners as your customers. I mean, I grew up in agriculture, so I grew up as a farm ranch kid. My career was in farm ranch, and there wasn't a better group of people that rather work for or have as customers than these agricultural rural people. They are wonderful. That doesn't mean they don't create challenges for you, but at the end of the day, it was the most enjoyable thing you could ever do. Can you imagine going out and putting on a farmer meeting in Minot, North Dakota with 200 people, and they're all farmers, and they, they act and talk just like you do? John, I mean, thank you fun. so much. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Everybody, it's been, it's been great talking to John this morning. We'll see you next Thursday, and please have a cooperative week. Thanks, John. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, WOF, 95.9 FM.